because this uh, might be the, the inner chronicle of what we are and we have to articulate ourselves, otherwise we would be cows in the field. Welcome to Cows in the Field. This is a show where we discuss philosophical themes in popular films. My name is Justin. I'm Laura. Today we revisit that fateful morning of January 15th, 2009, when one man had to perform a forced water landing to save 155 souls. That's right, we're talking about Sully. And today we're delighted to be joined by a friend from Yale, where he did his PhD in Italian studies, and he now works at the Language Resource Center in Colombia and hosts the podcast Said and Done, which is a show about the intersection of language, culture, and identity. It's our friend, longtime friend, Chris Kaiser. Thank you, Justin and Laura. It's great to be here. Thank you very much for joining us, Chris. And Chris, you suggested this movie, Sully, and... I want to just start with a kind of pitch for people. Maybe they haven't seen it, but what's some positive things we can say about Sully? You know, why watch this movie? Yeah, so this is a great movie. I'll just go ahead and say it. It's a it's a great movie, but um, you know, let me just explain that I'm a, a miracle on the Hudson junkie. I'm obsessed. <laughs> I'm obsessed with it. It went right over my apartment in New York City, and. You know, I go past where it happened all the time. I'm always thinking about it, thinking about how it could have happened. I mean, just really trying to figure out how how it's possible that a that somebody could have landed a plane like this. Uh, and so, in this movie, in Sully, you're going to see the anatomy of this incident. It's it's process ontology, and the movie it just plays it backwards and forwards so many times. But at the same time, you know, you watch this, and you watch it. Also because you want to get kind of icky. You know, there's this jingoism in the movie. There's this extremely problematic portrayal of women, a really <laughs> unusual version of the patriarchy. Uh, elements of this movie kind of echo the intro to like a 1970s gay porno film. So, you know, there's... You you somehow can't help but get a little uh, sullied by this film in, in watching it. So it's really kind of, it's got it all. It's a lot of fun. Oh my God, I what an know, intro. Yeah, I don't know how we could follow this. Uh, <laughs> that's an incredible introduction, Chris. Um, I mean, I think I think we can come out and safely say that, that, that we, Laura and I, were on different sides of the fence of this movie. That's fine. Yeah. It's fine. The movie ended, we've seen it now a few times, the movie ended this time and and, you know, I'm like, man, that was such a, an uplifting masterpiece. And and you you weren't as, as it's high. It's not up. as much for me. Yeah. But, I mean, I think I always have good things to say about every movie. I can always find something. And this is like, there's a lot that's that we should, that is to like praise and sully. What, the thing that I came away with is like, if you are at all worried that you are going to be in a disaster and you want to see a depiction of people doing their jobs so well and so cool, calm, and collected, and you're just going to feel safe and in your cocoon and be like, it's okay. It's okay because if something bad happens to me, like Sully's going to be in the cockpit and those scuba diver guys are going to be there too. And the really nice water 
transport. What is that? Like a water taxi? Yeah. The, yeah. The water, that's yeah. how you get to Jersey, right? Those the guys ferry. are going to come save me and they're going to give me their hat when I jump in the Hudson <laughs> for no reason. <laughs> like, it just like makes you feel like it's all going to be okay. Even if the worst possible thing happens to me, it's all going to be okay. Yeah. And, and to just to echo that, I mean, I, this movie comes out in 2016, which is a year that has, you know, been marred by certain events, namely the election of Donald Trump and their kind of collective realization that, um, you know, 50% of the country is willing to elect someone who shows extreme authoritarian tendencies and and seems to be completely out of touch with reality, at least from from my perspective. And when you watch a movie like this, you see the fundamental decency of humanity. And it it was a salve for me. I mean, ultimately, this movie, I feel like, is a, is a movie that reminds me that at, at our core, human beings are fundamentally decent and are willing to help one another. And, you know, despite whatever political differences, there's a shared humanity. And I, I think that's just, to me, that's like the main selling point. Yeah, you know, I think you really can pull out these two sides of this movie. And the movie has so many incongruous elements that are kind of put together, almost like two different colors of Play-Doh smashed together. <laughs> so I can easily see how, depending on your mood, depending on what you're looking for, depending maybe on your political orientation, you might emphasize in your own mind sort of the hero aspect, the salve aspect, or you might focus in on some of the more uh, strange treatments of women, for example, in this movie, um, or, or some of these other idiosyncratic things that are clearly like, you know, knocking around Clint Eastwood's mind that he wants to express and telegraph in some way. Yeah, let's start with, I mean, let's start with the self thing. Let's start on a positive note. We'll make our way to negative stuff. But, uh, you know, for me, this movie comes out 15 years after 9-11. And it starts with a, a very harrowing depiction of a plane crashing directly into, you know, not the towers, but into a bunch of buildings in New York City. I mean, that's dramatic and intense and triggering, you know, for many New Yorkers, I'm sure seeing that, um, that's, it's surprising. You, you know that Sully lands the plane on the Hudson. You don't have any inkling that there's going to involve, th this movie's going to have planes crashing into buildings, right? And yet that's the first thing we see. Um, Throughout the film, Sully has this kind of fever dream, right? He's reliving the event and he's experiencing it as a crash most of the time. And then occasionally he's reliving it um, as it happened, apparently. But by having this kind of fever dream echoing throughout, I feel like it calls to mind 9-11. And it just is, it's so much on the surface of the film. But then the film positions itself as a triumph, as a triumph of the human spirit sort of over this I mean, it's not really a tragedy, but over like overcoming this obstacle, this hurdle. In, in a certain extent, the triumph is twofold. It's one, like a triumph of like the human condition to be able to rise up and do something great in the moment. But it's also a triumph of like an individual hero over bureaucracy, right? Like, so there's, it's positioning itself like simultaneously as like a, look, bad stuff happens and people rise up and help each other. But also humans have this, re have this, bad side to them, right? There's this bad side, this kind of greed mm. that drives the corporation to pursue this aggressive attack on Sully's character, right? To try to discredit him in order to, you know, make their insurance claim more, I don't know, 
more plausible or whatever. Uh, and they want him to be a fall guy. And so there's the kind of tool, you know, building off of what you're saying, Chris, there's this dual sides of right. the uh, of, of humanity being depicted here. Yeah, you know, I think that it's it's interesting that initial scene where you think you're watching the miracle on the Hudson, but you find out it's actually a dream. It's Sully's, you know, fever dream where he's, you know, instead of landing the plane, it, it crashes into uh, Manhattan. Um, that is kind of a it, it kind of is a double scene because on the one hand it's it does evoke 9-11 and 9-11 actually is referenced directly in right. the movie at a certain point a character says you know um we need something good like you know to happen right. in 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 new york city and it, it's a very you know all, i guess subtle but clear reference to 9-11 but at the same time um Sully is constantly replaying events from his life in his mind in a, either a dream or a trance and in this case he's you know replaying what if he hadn't been so uh, adept and what if he had failed on that day and it's interesting like this film really shows you that with Sully he has no problem landing the plane it's his there's a perfect synchrony between his ability his uh, outstanding manly ability to land a plane and and actually doing it but his real challenge is the goddamn ntsb the bureaucracy <laughs> the press i mean these are the true i mean a catastrophic engine failure in in the i guess in the mind of clint eastwood is is a problem that that a man can overcome through his ingenuity through his wits and his training and his honor but organized bureaucracies that is truly a a, a scourge that's like the yeah. worst thing ever yeah that's right yeah that's right and, and and it is all that's the ultimate conflict of the movie i mean i saw the flashbacks and the relivings actually to be a kind of second guessing so so the the ntsb wants to tell a story whereby sully recklessly endangered everyone's life by by landing on the Hudson. He should have, according to them, turned back to LaGuardia, and they claim that he had enough time to, to get there. His thinking at the time is, well, I did the, cal you know, I did the, my instinct said- He eyeballed it. He eyeballed it. My instinct <laughs> was that I couldn't make it. So I had to, I just, this is what I had to do. But when I see him replaying the event, it's like when, you know, you- you know, you make a choice and then you can constantly second guess it. And for him, what it, it's like the ultimate version of that, because at the one hand, it's not an inconsequential choice. You know, he did save 155 lives, but he might have been just purely lucky in doing that. Right. He might have actually made the wrong choice and actually endangered them. And so now he's thinking to himself, oh, you know, shit like this, this could this is like hugely consequential like I, I i imagine that like surgeons this is something surgeons have to deal with when mm -hmm. you know a patient dies and they like want it you know did they make the right choice and then that's compounded twofold so one is the ntsb's in his ear telling him yeah 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 that you made the wrong choice and the other thing is the press is telling him you're a hero and he feels like a phony you know i think that's what you get out of that is like he feels to himself like i, I don't know if i did the right thing you know i i don't know if i'm really a hero here or if I'm just some guy who got lucky. And, you know, that kind of comes out to me, I think, in the scene in the bar when 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 he meets, like, Jason Rappaport. And they're all like, Michael yeah, Rappaport. Michael Rappaport. Yeah, sorry. And they're, like, buying him drinks and stuff. And 
and he's sort of you know he's he's very uneasy about this i mean he's an uneasy hero in general but but it i don't know it feels to me like he's not um fully on board with uh with the mantle and that's because i think he he wonders whether he in fact made the right decision to january 15th best day of the year Sully. Sully. <laughs> Hey, Pete. Sully's here. And he's there. Damn, he, he's everywhere. Sully. Like a real hero, Do you think the flashbacks of his biography are also meant to sort of to help with the second guessing piece of like, or do you think that's like more like He's a man's man who knows how to do everything because he was flying a crop jester in the 18th century <laughs> <laughs> or whatever. I, 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 I see it. The way I see it is that the NTSB, in, the way Clint Eason wants to spell it out is the NTSB is an externalization of his internal struggle okay. with, with whether he made the right decision. So it's like it's like a literalization of that inner struggle um and that he, you know so when the end when he overcomes the ntsb he is simultaneously overcoming his own ter- inner turmoil mm. and this external bureaucratic thing that's been put on him that's the way i see it but yes there's another way to read it which is like and i think i maybe read it this other way the first time i saw the movie which is like sully knows he did the right thing a hundred percent he knows and these motherfuckers at the end at the NDSB are just like they're just totally wrong, and he's just got to like prove them wrong. Anyway, sorry, Chris. That's my reading of it, actually. Um, so I think that if you think about it, if you see what happens, Sully's on the plane. He lands the plane. This is near the end. He has his list of passengers, a passenger manifest, and that's all he cares about is, did I get every passenger? He's almost in a kind of tunnel vision and looking only at that passenger list and really not even taking in what anybody's telling him early on until he finds out who all the passengers, that all the passengers have uh, have been accounted for. So my reading is in line with Justin, your initial reading, which is all of these doubts, all of these uh, pressures are p- placed on him by other people. He knows that he did the right thing. He knows in the moment that he lands the plane, as long as all the passengers are safe, I did the exact right thing. And, you know, the first half of the movie is really dramatizing this state of questioning and the burdens placed on him by other people. I mean, if you just think about some of the images, you have Sully in this steamy shower where he's just sitting and it's like the fog of other people's pressures that mm-hmm. they're putting on him. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, he's pictured kind of as like Rodin's thinker. He's just perfectly, you know, a perfect tableau of this this thoughtful man and trying to trying to reconcile all these things. So in in my uh, interpretation, the film is really trying to show you that Sully is this pure hero and other people have to to say it, you know, again, have sullied what he's yeah. what he's done. Either way, the bureaucracy is is fucking up Sully. You know, either way the <laughs> yeah. bureaucracy is playing some role. They're either railroading a guy who knows he's right or they're railroading a guy who knows he's right but also then providing him a lot of doubts of the self-doubts. And we should point out that this is really hammed up for the movie. This is a conflict that that Eastwood ginned up. Mm. It's not really such a big deal in real life. I wanted to, have you read the book as, as somebody who is a Miracle on the Hudson junkie? <laughs> 
No, I haven't. Okay. I'd love to. Ha- have you read it? No, absolutely not. No, I don't do that level of research for this podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, no, because I was curious. I mean, I think, I mean, the, it does sort of feel like, okay, the he did something amazing for 200. He had 208 seconds where he did something extraordinary. And then Clint Eastwood is like, I need to make a movie out of this, right? And the 208 seconds as they're shown, the the landing, the water landing itself is extraordinary and so well filmed. Um, but then the stuff around it does feel like he's like, all right, like let's movie this thing up. Like what do we need to make some conflict. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's also uh, a conflict that Eastwood has explored in yes. a number of his later period films. Yeah, Clint so. was like, can I make it? He's struggling. He's like a maverick hero who knows how to eyeball stuff and he's fighting against the man and bureaucracy and dudes in suits and computers. And the press. <laughs> <laughs> computers. <laughs> right, yeah. He, Clint Eastwood hates computers. <laughs> It's like the opposite of of what he's all about. I mean, it's true. Like Clint Eastwood is the most like analog man that has ever existed. Like there's he hates the digital age. He hates anything to do with like ones and zeros. <laughs> Although I, that is that does seem right. Although he shoots on digital though, right? Although I guess apparently this film was shot the sea, the Miracle on the Hudson water landing, I think pieces of it were shot on IMAX film. That's cool. That's what I have That's read. amazing. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. But, yeah. I think the whole thing is, but that'd be, that'd be kind of crazy to do a courtroom <laughs> scene in IMAX film. Yeah, but. they're not doing that. <laughs> uh, no, I love that, that Clint Eastwood is like the anti-computer uh, guy. He's, <laughs> he's just... I mean, the level of hatred he has for those simulations yes. yeah, comes through so hard. Well, I, what, is, what does Tom Hanks say? He's like, do we need to see any more simulations? <laughs> just the venom, just the spite. Oh, my God. It's basically Clint, like, coming through the frame to remind us, fuck those simulations. <laughs> Put down but your it, phone. It's true. Like, if you think about it, Sully's landing of the plane, he did that just like with the joystick, you know, yeah, just my aircraft. pure physical feel. My aircraft, yeah. yeah. There's no button that he pressed to land the plane. He, he only he could have done it, you know. Only a man could have done it. Exactly. So tell us about the Eastwood <laughs> man. <laughs> well, you know, I, I wrote down in our in our notes, you know, what is an Eastwood man, and it's a kind of archetype, I guess, that you see in a lot of Clint Eastwood films. And, you know, I'm no expert on Clint Eastwood, so please fill in any gaps that I'm leaving here. But if you think about it, it's it's a man who has a kind of special knowledge. If you think about, for example, the movie Unforgiven, you know, the, the Clint Eastwood character there has this knowledge of life and death that nobody has to the same degree. In this movie, in Sully, he has 50 years of flying experience. And just really is the the most professional, cap- capable of pulling off a miracle. And this expertise is kind of sig- signaled in different ways, in kind of semiotic ways. You know, he's got the white hair, he's got the mustache, he's <laughs> wearing all white. Mm. Um, and there's so many things about him that mark him as a kind of almost like demigod. You know, he's a women want him mm-hmm. in a first order way and by proxy. They transmit women transmit their desire for him through other women. Yeah. Um, he, you know, like the one lady's like, uh, who like hugs him and she's like, this yeah. is my mom. <laughs> uh, <laughs> men kind of also want him in a way. Uh, there's a, this is a very gay film in, in some, 
in some respects. Um, there's he's a good tipper, you know. I mean, just mm. everything about him is is kind of saintly. But he's really at the top of a hierarchy of men. I mean, you've got Sully at the very top, the man who is able to to carry out a miracle. You've got some of his peers, other sort of like older white men, kind of like him, who he interacts with, who meets him at the hospital. You've got Skiles, who's maybe at a slightly lower level. He's sure. lower in rank. But also, I mean, if you think about it, Sully and Skiles, they did that together. And I think Sully is the first one who will say this, but the movie's Sully. Yes, The movie's <laughs> showing women throwing themselves at Sully and just ignoring Skiles. Like, oh, he's chopped liver. Stupid Skiles. <laughs> yeah, they're like, and then, have you seen his chin, though? That's Aaron Eckhart, guys. <laughs> I know, his chin is amazing. And then, then below him, I mean, so I'm kind of talking about how Sully participates in this hierarchy. And below, you know... Elsewhere in the movie, you see these guy, these golf guys who you know talk their way onto the plane. You know, all they care about is golf and flirting with flight, flight attendants. But when, <laughs> when the you know when the geese hit the fan blades, you know these <laughs> these guys they're weak, crying babies. So, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, it's just pathetic. Um, so there's this whole this whole like great chain of being that Sully's at the top of, and then women. <laughs> Don't even participate in this. Women, well, they are they are they do some phone acting. <laughs> <laughs> like women are treated so terribly in this movie. It's it's ridiculous. Like Sully's wife, I mean, uh, Lori Sullenberger. Like she's just crying and just out of control on the phone. It's it's horrible. Um, I mean, her and, character seems written entirely to add an extra dramatic tension, which is that he might lose his pension like he it right. just is a way for him to mm. sound off to someone i know but it is pretty tensions. shitty that they're like you know if you land you know almost died and are also going through this i'm gonna be calling up and being like uh we got another bill and i really need you back in the air i really need you back in the air justin because like i'm looking at this bill house. yeah <laughs> I understand what you mean. Yes, it definitely. We need to add some more, some more dramatic layers here. We need to add some more conflict for Sally, some pressure for him. Yeah. But yeah, poor Laura Lynn. Yeah, that, that's just her like role. on her this right. phone, being like, "All right, here we go. <laughs> yeah, get back in the air, Sally. We gotta. What about the? What about that rental property? <laughs> like, dude, you just pulled off the miracle in the Hudson. Can you give the guy a break? <laughs> I know that he's about to go through this incredibly like stressful thing, and she just called him. And she's like, "I just figured out you could have died." So can we talk about that real quick? Like, yeah. That couldn't wait a couple hours, lady. Like, she's well, always like, you're scaring me now, now Sully. <laughs> um, I mean, let's go keep going down the chain of being. So where did the NTSB people rank? Oh, the bottom. <laughs> I mean, I agree. They're at the bottom or maybe not even in it. They're I mean, not even like They're scum. not even men. Yeah, there's like like, like turtles and <laughs> pond scum, <laughs> seaweed, and then well, NTSB. I think the guys at the bottom are, you know, like the golf guys or maybe the guys at the bar who are just kind of worshipful of Sully, mm. you know, groveling in a way. But um but yeah, the NTSB, I mean, they're they're just villains. They're just dastardly. One complaint you might have with this movie is that the heroes are too angelic and the villains are too demonic. And, um, you know, I heard that complaint when the movie ended from someone. And uh, <laughs> who? <laughs> I'm not going to name names. But, you know, my response to that is this. So 
I feel like this movie is not attempting to be a some sort of faithful retelling of these events, right? Yeah. It's 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 a dramatizing of some aspects of this. And I think by having the bad guys be so obviously bad um and Sully be so obviously good, um there's this kind of catharsis that comes at the end where you can where Sully wins and it's the sort of thing that, like, he's been drawing that tension out this whole time. Obviously, like, if you're really watching the movie, you're not, you're never really thinking, yeah, Sully's going to get nailed by the NTSB boy. <laughs> it's not, you're not. But, but at the same time, it's so satisfying. I find it incredibly satisfying when he gets to, he gets to, I mean, do the thing I think, Laura, you hate, which is he gets to both have them grovel to him and be like, we were wrong. And then for him, to turn it back around and be the bigger man and not even accept their groveling and be like, I'm actually not a hero. I disagree. Let me show, let me show you how much of a hero I am by denying the mantle of hero to your face. And <laughs> I, I don't know. I think there's like something. Just, just like fist bumping. It's catharsis. Fist bumping? No. I don't know. I'm pumping my fist. Thank because you. I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> this is pure catharsis. This is exactly what I want to see. I want to see the mustache swirling villain be fucking taken down a peg mm, by mm-hmm. the hero and he doesn't have to do it by chopping his head off he could just do it by showing that he's so much of a better person by being humble yeah but if you think about it what are the stakes for both parties they're very different so for sully the stakes are is sully truly a miracle worker as he believes himself to be and as everybody believes him to be it's an existential stake but for the NTSB faceless bureaucrats, the pawn scum who's trying to, you know, take him down. So what? Okay, maybe Sully did make the right choice. Okay, who cares? Move on. You know, it's not like the stakes are so high for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the conflict is really um, amped up, but the 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 structural motivations behind the conflict are a little shaky. I would say. To say, I mean, one thing you could say in favor of the. U.S. Airways side of things, I guess, is that for them, it's like a lot of money on the line. You know, it's it's a it's a monetary stake for them. And for Sully, I like this idea that for Sully, it, the stakes are existential. Um, because for me, the way I read the film, the stakes are not just existential, but like it's like whether he will ever be able to feel like he did the right thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, so it's this like feeling of like confidence in his own decision-making that's been shaken. And, but then the film adds this other thing with the Laura Linney stuff, which is like, oh, and the stakes are also monetary for him, which you might think actually like takes what could be like a spiritual stake and just like reduces it down to like, now we're just monetary stakes. Like they, they want money. He wants money because he wants his pension. And it's just that, but but I think you're right that it, that that's like a they want money, but he wants something greater than money, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that the, the financial pressures feel external from Laura Linney, which is why I kind of feel like it's unfair, like it's it's sort of a sucky role for her, because I think what Sully's mostly concerned about when he doesn't have his wife calling him, making him anxious about it, is like I am a this is my whole life. I've done this for forty years. This is who I am. It's important to my entire like into my identity that I am a pilot not just that I am a safe pilot that's right I have this like business side business right where I'm like I am the person who knows everything about safety and emergency protocol this is what I've like projected out into the world and if like I fuck this up like that's shattering to my identity um so yeah I think and I've in the the financial stuff does sort of feel totally like that's coming from 
from his family and not as something that's like core to his concerns. Yeah. I I think the financial stuff also is sort of a classic Eastwood move to kind of show he's not a a, a perfect saint, you know, in his background. Mm. Like he's he's got this financial problem, he's got some, you know, problems with, you know, having the a good salary with US Airways. Uh and he's got this consulting business, but it's kind of a yeah. fly by night business. It's, funky, it's like yeah. like Skiles when he's like, oh I Googled you. And it looked like you had 50 people working there, but actually, if you dig in, it's just you. So there's a this kind of uh, thing where he's an imperfect hero, which is, you know, if you watch any Eastwood movie, you're always going to see it, a, a slightly imperfect hero. Yeah. No, I like that. I, I think that's right. And I think that one aspect of the situation that Eastwood is really keen to highlight is that, through Sully, that is, is that heroism isn't a single man's burden to bear, right? It's it's a shared and diffuse thing that like we as a community bear for one another. Um and that's like borne out in the in all this highlighting in the film of like the tertiary people. Yeah. Who, I want to talk about that. Who get involved like all the you know the you know all the um whatever the water taxi people, the air traffic control guy who's actually one of my favorite characters in He's the so film. so good. Um and um and in, in each case, you see the effect, well, at least not in each case, but in, in the case of the air traffic control guy, you totally see the, the, the effects on him. He thinks that the, these people died for an extended period of time. Like he's like in a room by himself, like yeah, crying. No one tells him. <laughs> yeah. And like, I, no one tells him. Yeah. And he, I think like, I don't know. Again, I just think it's like this, each of these people have to bear it, but like, Maybe no single person bears it, and that's kind of how we collectively overcome these traumas. Yeah, you know, that was one of my favorite parts of the movie. And this is a totally, like, like there are some parts that I look at in a very cynical way, and other parts where I look at it with just, like, total credulity, just loving it. And that was one of the things that I, mm-hmm. I loved. And I, I think, Laura, you, you probably have, have thoughts on this too, but just the way, just the, the way it's portrayed, how all of New York kind of comes together on the Hudson. You have the the New York Police Department scuba divers who come in on the helicopter. You have the um, the ferry boats who were you know right there and ready to go. And in fact, the the guy who's piloting the boat is the actual guy, oh. the actual captain wow. who did it on the day. And awesome. I mean, he really he's really like showing himself for the camera he's loving it Um, (laughs) and uh it's almost like you know and this is kind of uh it it goes up to the level of of a theme almost and connecting back to the the 9-11 thing you know if if 9-11 was this catastrophe this plane-based catastrophe what you have here is a kind of i would say baptism in a way or rebirth you have on the almost the same geographical spot, a plane that lands safely. And you have all of the people who were involved in 9-11, all these different uh, transportation workers, rescue workers, all coming together and performing a ritual, a ritual cleansing, a ritual uh, rebirth. And it takes place on the same exact stage as 9-11. Because mm-hmm. in a way, 9-11 was the, the reason that it even happened. The reason that it took place there was because Lower Manhattan is a kind of stage. 
it's a stage for the world. And so that's what this was too. But it was the reverse of that. It was a reverse 9-11. And, and you needed all of these groups of people to participate in this collective ritual and this collective rebirth. Mm. And it was it's just amazing to see. And that's really one of the best parts of this movie. I just had a thought too where I was like, you know what is sort of miraculous is that we could travel in the air at all. And like there's so many moving parts to this. And we're not like the fact that the airplanes are not bopping into each other in the sky is incredible. There's so many people who are just... Not heroes just doing their job really well. And I forget about that on a day-to-day basis. This movie really like spends time highlighting those people. Yeah. The competency mm-hmm. of the people who are not the Sullies, right? They're not the highest um people. They're just the people who are behind the scenes. But they're mm-hmm. co- but the competency that they show in the moment of strife. And I think the fact that Eastwood gives them those moments to shine in the film is really important. Um, it's both reassuring to your point, Laura, that like when you watched how, co- just how precise and competent the air traffic control, you know, to Sully and back, how that exchange is going and how, you know, how quickly they find airspace and landing space for him. And just, you know, and, and then, you know, and for every one of him, there's a guy at LaGuardia, there's a guy at yeah, they're all or whatever, like doing, having the same, like, holy shit moment like (laughs) and working so well but just doing it right like they're not like they're not showing uh fear or trepidation they're just okay i have to do this and then they're doing it and and that is reassuring um and to me it also is just uh in particular about the stuff on the hudson it's like these people who see a tragedy happen and they're like they just spring into action and i think that's the sort of thing that reminds me of like the greatness the magnanimity magnanimity of the human condition and the human spirit which is like that we will you know new york is i don't know let me say this new york is like famously a place where you you know you won't know your neighbor right because there's just so many people and yet you don't know these people but people will treat you as if they're family right they'll go out of their way to help someone in in need and I think there's something magical and special about that that is, I think, a, a spe- something specific to New York because of the density. Maybe you get it in other very dense urban places, but like New York is kind of like famous for that because it, it's just so dense. Um, and it was demonstrated on 9-11 as well. Um, and I think there's just something to celebrate about that. And I think Eastwood knows that. And that's one of the big things he wants to highlight. Yeah, I think in New York, you have this this weird thing because, you know, Eastwood is a famous, you know, Republican, hates uh, Democrats, hates Obama, talks to a chair and pretends Obama's <laughs> there. Um, so he would, it's weird because conservatives had this interesting relationship with New York City. Like Trump is from New York, so it's good in some ways, but also that's where the liberal media is from and, you know, all the social justice warriors live. So like there's this kind of duality of New York City. But I think that Eastwood tries to show how New York is, you know, fundamentally populated by good people, by ferry boat captains, by, you know, ambulance workers and and people like that. He, for him, I think that's who he thinks the true New Yorkers are. Yeah. I mean, I think for Eastwood, the the good the goodness is in the individual and not in the collective bureaucratic entity. So the goodness of the group arises out of the goodness of each individual in the group, not out of some sui generis, 
like group structure. And I think that's the thing that Eastwood despises ultimately. And, um, and is, you know, again and again in his late period films is, is at pains to highlight where bureaucratic structures go bad. Right. It's, it's really the individual who, who's, who has to triumph despite or over these group structures. Yeah. I was trying to think, cause like, is it, just group structures or is it corporate greed that's like the the issue at NTSB because well, there's yeah, also like that. the role of the union is important in this movie mm, yeah. um there are like his right they're the ones taking care of and advocating for for Sully you know so there's not like and of course that's a collective and a, and a bureaucracy in its own um but that's like a collective of like working men with trades right yeah. <laughs> which is distinct from the suits that's a good point i mean i think that the union though the representative of the union is a sole individual uh-huh. right as far as i can tell so i mean you, but you're right that that does push back a little bit the reason i thought it was group and not just corporate greed is just if you extend this theme across his movies yes. then yeah. you see you know it's like the police who are the problem. And that's not corporate greed. It's, it's you know, so if you like in a movie like Changeling or we watched last night, um, Richard Jewell, again, it's the police who are, who are the issue there. And, and it's the or authority the structure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not mm-hmm. the, um, you know, so anyway, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- but I think you're both really on the right path in identifying his political philosophy, I guess, which is, or Eastwood's political philosophy, which is, you know, you said, Laura, that you see all these people who are, you know, running the boats and running air traffic control and all these people who come together and make things work. And Justin, to use your language, these are all individuals who are exercising their expertise in these different places. But it's all individuals who have mastery over their role. It's not this collective of people who hide their identities and mm-hmm. plot and carry out the the wishes of, <laughs> of a larger interest mm-hmm. um, and sub- make themselves subservient to this power. It's people who have mastery over their specific spot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. And have like an internal compass for what's right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you're right, because what Sully does, you know, if Sully were a corporate man, if Sully were just one of these bureaucrats, he would have not i mean he he would he would not have run on his own instincts he yep. would have carried out he would have made sure that the plane was intact at all cost at all costs that's you know? right yeah well he would have followed that book or right. whatever yeah. and then he said you he would know have, they would have crashed right because they wouldn't uh, have gone to step 15 <laughs> yeah yeah how is that related to his mustache chris <laughs> <laughs> well i mean I, I don't really know exactly what to make of the mustache, mm. but I will say that Skiles, the Skiles character, his mustache is com- comically large. I mean, it's just <laughs> ridiculous. I mean, he looks like like a, a character from the village people. It's just unbelievable. And if you look at the, the real Skiles, I mean, his mustache is normal. It's not like crazy. <laughs> um, put a broom underneath his nose. So I'm just like... I mean, it must simply be some kind of totem of this mm. Eastwood man, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. The man who can, you know, sport a mustache in 2016, or I guess 2009, right? Where mustache is not that, 
right? They weren't the most popular. When did uh, mustaches have a comeback? I'm trying to remember. There was well, a... look, I think there might have been a comeback among like hipsters in Brooklyn in 2009, okay. but definitely not among. Because you remember how our dean Gail Salovey had like a like a big honking mustache, true. and then we were like, it's sort of a sex symbol. Mustaches are sexy. There's something important <laughs> about sexy mustaches. Even it when they're true. dated and you're like, you look like my dad, but it's not a problem. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to just insert here, and there is a robust community of people online who produce Sully Skiles slash fiction, imagining mm. a kind of gay relationship between these these two characters. And I, I think that the the fertile ground that allows this to happen is the fact that that Eastwood has so profoundly exaggerated their masculinity that you have mm. these two overwhelmingly masculine characters and the things that they say to each other are so masculine as to almost cross the line where Skiles <laughs> is like you know you know he's talking with Sully on the phone and he's like oh, we're not getting a lot of sleep in this room either tonight and you're just like wait what <laughs> What are you saying? <laughs> what the I heck? like when they're just walking. They're like, you want to run? Yeah, I want to run. Now yeah. we're just going to jog and talk. <laughs> <laughs> or like Skiles, like over half the time that he's on camera, he's wearing a bathrobe. I mean, <laughs> it's just like, why? <laughs> I'm sure that didn't happen. <laughs> I didn't notice any of this, Chris. This is amazing. <laughs> Um, you didn't notice the bathroom? No, I didn't. They call know. it out even because <laughs> he's standing there in his robe and he's like, why are you even still in your uniform? I see. <laughs> I got yeah, cozy. Skiles, How come you're exactly. not cozy? <laughs> Skiles wants Sully to put on a bathrobe. <laughs> and like they're in the shower, like they're sweating in the shower, mm -hmm. there's steam. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's this <laughs> totally unintentional, unintentional, like homosexual, homosocial uh, subtext here. Yeah. Wow, did did not catch any of that, and I. But I. But now that I'm now that you're saying it, I mean, I'm imagining some slash fic of my own, and I'm thinking, yeah, I mean, I, I have read some of this uh, slash fiction, and it's pretty zesty. I mean, they really. <laughs> oh man, um, I had no idea, Chris. That's amazing. That that's that's the kind of background that we need to bring it more into on this podcast. <laughs> I had no. This is good information. Um, Somehow that's. That's not how I remember it. It just doesn't seem right. It's because it's not right. So that you did everything you could, it was more than enough. Ask the passengers. Ask your wife and kids. Ask mine. I want to talk about time warp. So, so Chris, you put this in, but I don't know. I, I, I have no idea what, what you meant by this. So tell, tell us about time warps. Well, I just think it's interesting, the relationship of people to time in this movie. And, you know, this movie is not a linear retelling. Time, different timelines intersect. They pass through objects at in certain moments. For example, one of the most amazing shots in the movie is when Sully is jogging along the Hudson, sort of going the opposite direction from which he landed his plane. And he goes past the USS Intrepid mm -hmm. Museum, mm -hmm. which is this uh, World War II era ship that's docked on the side, on the western side of of Manhattan, that's a you know people can tour it. There's fighter planes on top of this ship, and he sees a fighter plane, and there's this amazing transition where there's he's looking at the fighter plane, and then the scene flips, and that same plane is being shown. It's 50 years earlier. Sully's flying the plane, so just within one instant, he's flipped back 
in a kind of like Proustian way to another timeline. Mm -hmm. So time, past and present really intersect in, in this interesting way. There's also the fact that the the miracle on the Hudson itself was, what did you say, Laura, like 207 seconds or something like that? 208, I think they said. I think 208 seconds. Yeah. And so you have this, so many crazy things happening in this very, very short period of time. How do you represent that in a movie, in a feature length film? In the movie, they portray that event twice. Mm -hmm. And the second time that they run through it, they actually cut it halfway through and then play the second half later. Mm -hmm. So just the ways in which time works in this movie are very interesting. And time, in a way, is a kind of commodity. So the NTSB attempts to control time and in so doing control Sully. Mm -hmm. And Sully is able to fight back and he's able to say, no, you need to add 30 seconds of decision time to right. your simulation to really understand what's going on. So in the end, it's Sully who controls time. He's the ultimate time master. You know, he is given just 208 seconds to perform a miracle. And in that time, he executes an amazing plan. He does so much in so little time. So it, it just kind of shows you the malleability of time. I, I think that's kind of a, a theme in this movie. Yeah, I think, I know, now that you say it, I totally see it. I mean, here's two other things I thought about with respect to time. So one is that Sully, for Sully and for Skiles and for everyone on that plane, they they probably thought they were going to die. Mm -hmm. And so what happens when you think you're going to die? What's the famous thing that happens? Like your life flashes before your eyes. That moment seems to extend forever, right? It just goes, it just... You know, you you get that rush of adrenaline, which for you slows your perception of time. The moment seems to extend and you get that sort of increased decision making power or whatever. Um, so there's a kind of time dilation that's happening, presumably in the experience of the of the people. The other thing about where he's fighting time. So he's fighting time in, in the NTSB's attempt to control him. He's fighting time and then he only has 208 seconds to perform the miracle. But they're also once he lands the plane, they're fighting time to be saved because they're they're fighting and I I always forget that part where like you're going to freeze they're going to freeze right and yeah. and they only have and they think one of the guys even mentions they only have like 3 minutes or something or before they're going to like actually we won't be able to resuscitate them and so they're fighting time as well even once they landed and you know you you I think for many of us we might have thought well once he landed on the Hudson they're they good. were safe yeah. right but Eastwood shows us, in fact, actually, like there is still a whole other part to the rescue. And the, the plane is sinking, too. There's a hole in the back That's of right. the plane. And, you know, in a half an hour, the, that plane ends up underwater totally. Yep. So, you know, and so there's so many. Sully truly is like a time warrior in the sense that so time has conspired against him. And it's only through his extra human expertise that he's able to combat this time trap that, he, that he's in. Right. He also cites, as part of his expertise, how much time he's put in the cockpit. That's, right. like, a, that's like a point where he, he emphasizes this. He's like four decades of flying, right? And X number of, of flights and that kind of thing. And I think like there is this sort of feeling like par part of the reason, just to go back to a theme of Clint Eastwood. Oh, yes. Right? <laughs> that he is so fucking good. Is because he's, he's old. old. Exactly. Because yeah. he's had all this lived experience. I know. But that's just when they want to push you out and send you out to pasture, right? <laughs> you know, these like these middle-aged 
guys who have computer programs, yep. right? Like they don't they don't respect his oldness That's and right. how amazing it is. That's right. But <laughs> it you know just the but I I think you're right. Just the scale of these two times, you know, uh, pilots measure their experience in hours. Right. So they say, I have 4,000 hours on the 737. I've got 2,000 hours on the Airbus 360 or whatever. Um, but so you've got 40 or 50 years of of Sully's time flying with no incidents at all. And then 208 seconds where all of those 50 years are brought to bear. I yeah. mean, just comparing these two time spans, 50 years and 208 seconds. It's just insane. Just getting your head around that is, I mean, it, you 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 understand why you need a movie about it. Yeah. Okay. I wanted to also talk about Tom Hanks because I think that I I think I made this argument to Laura when we finished the movie, but I, I think Tom Hanks elevates this material. And in particular, he's doing a couple different things, which I think are really interesting. So I think they can. you can actually see all the things he's doing in that final speech that he gives. And one of the things that he's doing in that speech is he, there's this kind of weariness and crackle to his voice that Tom Hanks just knows how to do. He's so good at that. Like, he does it in a bunch of final speeches in movies where he knows he, this is how I'm going to win the audience. It's like he shows this vulnerability. And it's so, I don't know, to me, it's so powerful. Um, partly because it's like honest and open, but it's also like, you know, magnanimous. He's, right, he's humbled. It's such a capstone because it's coming, you know, at the end of this huge battle. And he's been fighting off these NTSB people. And as I said before, he doesn't give them the middle finger, right? He's like, he does do a little bomb dropping, right? He says, can we get serious now? <laughs> and oh, and yeah. I like that too. I like that too. But I, I love the, the speech that comes after that. I disagree. It wasn't just me. It was all of us. It was Jeff and Donna and Sheila and Doreen and all of the passengers rescue workers, air traffic control, ferry boat crews and the scuba cops. We all did it. We survived. Well, he also, in that speech, so he says, can we get serious now? And for some reason, this line is just like set up to be the dr dramatic pivot point of the whole movie. Yeah. But the speech is about saying, you're not taking into account the human factor. Mm -hmm. You're running a simulation. You weren't there and you don't know that you need decision time and, and whatnot. But yeah, it's really a kind of speech where he calls to everybody's attention the humanity mm -hmm. of of the experience. And it's, you know, it's really a kind of uh, manifesto in a way that aligns with Clint Eastwood's, I guess, sense of uh, propriety, his hatred of you know systems and computers, and and really pointing out the the human individual as the locus of goodness and morality. Yes, mm -hmm. that's right. That's exactly right. And I think Tom Hanks is there a more perfect embodiment of the locus of goodness and morality that we have in Hollywood. 
No, I mean, one. I feel like it is Tom Hanks. If I you know. were to say those words, you would think, well, it's got to be Tom Hanks. I know. Um, you, you, Billy Bob Thornton could not have pulled this off. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Billy, Billy Bob has some range, but, but you know, it's, Tom Hanks is just perfect. It's like he was made for roles like this, made for roles of these guys who are, you know, he's playing a guy who's, I think, He's playing a guy who's older than him, right? At this point mm-hmm. in his life. And um, but he just has that weariness to him because and it's also because we've lived with Tom Hanks for so long. That's something that happens with actors where you they've been in your life so long that you think they're older than they are. And so you you kind of you see him with the white hair and you're like, man, Tom Hanks is looking old. And then you go, I see he's not that old. <laughs> it's just that he we've he's been in our lives for 30 years or more, right? By that point. He also has the ability to summon this gravitas. You yes. Know? You just see him and you're like, oh my God. And just look at the context where he's in. He's with all these bug-like government bureaucrats who are just kind of <laughs> hunched over like cockroaches. He just squishes <laughs> them. He just destroys them. You know, these guys pushing pencils. I mean, they don't do anything and he's landing a plane. It's, it's amazing. I mean, but let me also add about that scene. I mean, just a just a slight uh, quirk I noticed. So then they're like, okay, now we're gonna listen to the audio. Yeah. And every like hundreds of people like put on the headphones. Like, couldn't they just get a speaker? Yeah. Like, I, they, I thought do we need thing. hundreds of headphones? <laughs> I was like, as somebody who's worked as an administrative assistant and like set up tack for meetings, I'm like, this is a goddamn nightmare. Yeah. That'd like be they're a flipping lot. back and forth to you know live simulations and stuff. I was like, I. It's, I would be so stressed out. <laughs> also, those headphones do not look high quality or comfortable. Mm, okay. So. <laughs> They're not Bose is what you're saying. Well, they couldn't afford Bose. I mean, they needed to get thousands of pairs of headphones. Just, they just, they just took know, them they, from the airplane. Yeah, they look like the airplane yeah. ones. <laughs> <laughs> they look, like, they look <laughs> kind of like the ones that used to like stick in your ears. You know, yeah, those yeah, ones yeah, are yeah. really uncomfortable, like stethoscope. <laughs> <laughs> they actually salvaged them from Sully's plane. That's right. That's what they got. <laughs> Like we couldn't save the play, but we did save the shitty headphones. So it's okay. <laughs> and a couple of peanuts. Oh, man. Well, but then the thing I like, too, and, and Eastwood, I think, this is the mark of, I think, uh, I mean, it's that or the, the screenwriter, however, it's the pairing of a good filmmaker, is that Sully delivers this sort of heartwarming but also melancholic speech about how, you know, I'm not a hero, we're all heroes. And then you have Skiles as the counterpoint, right? Mm-hmm. And he cracks a joke. First Officer Skiles, is there anything you'd like to add? Anything you would have done differently if you had to do it again? Yes. I would have done it in July. And, you know, he gets this big laugh. And, of course, the laugh is echoed throughout the theater, right? Because you need that moment of levity to to break that, like, to give you that relief. Because you just had this, like, emotional catharsis with Tom Hanks. And now you need that moment of of release just to be like, all right, it's okay. We can, you know, life is okay. And um, and I, I kind of see that as the role that Skiles plays, right? He's the kind of comic sidekick to Sully. Sully's so deadly serious. And Skyler's always cracking jokes, and he's always bringing a kind of easygoing nature to him. Yeah, and if and if you know Sully is struggling with inner demons of doubt, Skiles is a hundred percent like we did it right. Yeah. You know, he's there to always be like, "We nailed it. These guys are dummies." You know, 
Yeah, he's a hype man. You know, you yeah, need yeah, to have yeah. a hype man in your corner. This is a, a real tension that existed in the in the movie, I think, you know, because if you I, I didn't read Sully's book, but I read a few things about it. And one of the things that he's he goes to great pains to describe is how the miracle in Hudson was not Sully's miracle. Right. You know, it was Sully and Skiles and everybody else. And so the film in just in the title sets up a kind of conflict between Sully and Skiles. Mm. And and it really does create this hierarchy where Sully's at the top. And Skiles has this kind of, you know, he's poking holes in, in, in things and being a kind of comedic relief. But that's not the reality of the actual miracle on the Hudson. Mm. In reality, you know, the the pilot and the co and the the co-pilot are are kind of interchangeable. You know, Skiles is at times actually the captain of of different planes. So they they really do this for the for the movie, but it, it works, I think. Like because in that final scene, it's so thunderous, you know, where where Sully just you know wipes the floor with these guys, and the the audience is total totally in shock. The audience in the in the uh, auditorium of of the NTSB hearing, yeah. and you know it's clear that you can't leave it on that note because the the audience in the theater would would, would mirror that reaction. So exactly. you, you got to get you got to get Skiles in there to to crack a joke. Yeah, and you know, it, if anything, it just makes it plays out to the Eastwood idea that like great acts come from great individuals, right? Working together, but ultimately with individuals doing their thing, and and it, ultimately this was Sully's call. Um, and I think it, to be fair, I think he's right about that. I would have guessed. I would guess that there. I mean, I don't know how these things work, but my assumption would be it seems plausible to me at least that that was entirely Sully's call. And so insofar as the decision was the pivotal thing to land on the Hudson, was the pivotal decision to make, um, then he is deserving of that credit there. Um, and then you're right, but then if the film isn't convinced that it's Sully, it's not like, a, there's no room for him then to be like, it's really everyone. Because if the film is like, yeah, it's really everyone, then when Sully says that, you're like, yeah, the fucking film already told me Yeah. <laughs> there was a moment um, w when the plane after the plane lands and Sully is like waist deep in water, just like running back and forth the aisle, just, you know, making sure nobody's left. There's no baby in a corner or they didn't get grabbed or something. You know, anybody here, he's throwing things aside. And then and then Skiles comes out like from the cockpit and he's just like, we got to get off this plane. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. what have you been doing for the past minute? Like. <laughs> <laughs> just like putting on your scarf, like what's he's combing his mustache. <laughs> oh, he's point. like totally dry. He's just like, all right, have you are you done splashing? Like, let's go. <laughs> I I think it's a good point that you do have to place Sully really in the captain's chair of this film. Yeah. So much of this film is constrained by the actual events of the Miracle on the Hudson. There's only so many ways you can go with it. And I think you do have to put Sully as a kind of, mm -hmm. you know, hero. You know, I, I mentioned at the beginning that I'm a kind of Miracle on the Hudson junkie. I'm constantly kind of replaying it and wondering how it could have happened. There are so many places you can go online to see a recreation in a flight simulator of the Miracle on the Hudson. Oh, wow. There's so many aviation channels that describe it from a technical mm -hmm. perspective. But what this is, I mean, when you when you have either a, a great trauma or a kind of miraculous thing that almost is so good, it's too good to be true, you have to replay it over and over and over to understand 
how this possibly happened. And in this case, it's a replaying not of the actual incident, but of the affect around the incident, of the meanings that people ascribed to that event. Mm. So it's a kind of, it's a different story, but it's still a kind of replaying and reviewing and, and processing. It's a mm -hmm. way of processing this, but yeah. not from a purely technical perspective. Yeah, I like so you that. you do need all that stuff. Yeah. I like the idea that it's processing. I think that's important. And I think that, um, I mean, one of the things that we see is the flight go down, but from the perspective of the air traffic controller, and then the second time we see it, we see the exact same thing, but from Sully's perspective. And yeah, you, yeah. the first time you see it, when Sully goes dead, right, on the, on, from his end, it goes dead. You think that maybe they, like, lost, they lost radio signals, mm -hmm. right? They've gone too low, maybe, and the radio doesn't work. Because he keeps saying, or he thinks they've just turned it off to concentrate, or they've turned it off, yeah. or whatever. Like you, you think like somehow he can't, Sully can't hear the guy, even, but he's going to keep saying it, right? He's going to keep saying, "We have Tito blah blah blah. We have Tito but he's not hearing anything back. So you're thinking, "Ooh, something's gone wrong." <laughs> but then you see it from Sully's perspective, and he's he's just concentrating. He's just like, "I don't want, I don't need to respond anymore. I'm just focused on my job." And I think that kind of stuff is really interesting, you know, because seeing it from those two perspectives not play out in a in cuts, but play out completely separately. Because mm -hmm. um, it gives you time to sort of meditate and reflect on it um, from those different perspectives and wonder, like the characters themselves, what was happening? That aspect of it also really well illustrates a principle that I've learned about in watching tons of aviation YouTube videos because I'm I love watching you know movies or YouTube videos about planes and things like that and I'm on a flight path so I see planes going by my apartment all the time so there's this principle called aviate navigate communicate that's the order in which a pilot uh, you know deploys their attention and so communicate is at the bottom of yeah. that list and so he needs to aviate and he needs to navigate and communicate is is not being not not that important at that point yeah that makes sense and also like men don't need to communicate right? <laughs> sorry that's the order of operations for men right it's like yeah. do your job figure out where you need to go talk talk about it with your wife to your wife well, who's like I'm worried about our bills. <laughs> He's like, I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I, it's not time to communicate right now, Laura Lenny. <laughs> it's true. I mean, I, I think Clint Eastwood probably applies that, uh, that triptych in his own life. I mean, he's clearly, he's not like Mr. Congeniality. Like he's not the life of the party. He's no, but his films are like, yeah, because I was thinking about there's that another in that funny walk. Now we're going to run scene where they're just walking through Midtown and uh, they're like, oh, well, we survived a crash. And like now the union's going to send us a therapist, you know, mm -hmm. and they sort of like are dismissive of mm -hmm. of talk there. Like they're sort of just like, yeah, of course, we're going to have PTSD, but we're not going to talk about it, you know. But this movie, as Chris pointed out, is a processing, yeah. right? You know, I think. Clint Eastwood's really attuned to, of course, he made an entire movie about PTSD, right? Maybe more than one, but yeah. um, American Sniper too, right? He's actually really interested in the interiority of men and and maybe how they're not able to communicate it verbally to their wives, but it's, you know, he's he's making those films so we, he can process alongside, a, you know, with the audience. Yeah, maybe it's, an, again, a way of like laying bare the interior life that is often not communicated. Yeah. Men. 
Yeah. He's a man's man director. Like, let's be <laughs> let's be honest. I mean, he's a, he, he likes to direct movies, for the most part, about men that are generally aimed at middle-aged men. I mean, there are exceptions. Some of his movies are about women, um, Changeling in particular. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, Million Dollar Baby. Um, but yeah, a lot of it is, is, you know, men going through stuff and trying to process Yeah, it. he but, made Changeling when he found out that women weren't treated well in the past. <laughs> <laughs> he was, sorry. Like, Did you guys know this? <laughs> did he direct Captain Phillips? No, he did not. Oh, okay. So Captain Phillips, which I have not seen, was directed by Paul Greengrass, who uh, directed United ninety three. To be fair, so, okay, yeah, okay, okay. Sorry, all right. So but did you, you can like kind it? Of, uh, I would say no. Yeah. I did not love it. I would say that Sully is a similar movie in certain ways, mm-hmm. but a much better movie than mm-hmm. Captain Phillips was. I think we got to the bottom of a lot of Clint Eastwood stuff, but I want to ask you guys. You want to go back to Tom Hanks, right? No, 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 no. Okay. I think we did our Tom Hanks thing. I, I want to ask you though, since we're on Eastwood and some of the connections that we've mined here. I mean, I'm gonna ask you in particular, Chris, uh, yeah. because I don't think Laura wants to weigh in on this. But no, Chris, I, do you have a something. favorite Clint Eastwood film? Yeah, I would say my favorite is Unforgiven. I mean, you just start to really see all of the nuances, the dark clouds, the the heaviness of your life's decisions. So it's really kind of Eastwood culminating some of these ideas that then find expressions in different characters in his later years. And and of course, one example is, is Sully. Sully is a version of the Eastwood character in Unforgiven, I would say, but with, sort of tuned to mm. a different frequency. But again, I'm not a, an Eastwood expert. I haven't seen all of his movies. I feel like, yeah, I feel like we, so we watched... In anticipate, you know, in preparation for this, we watched Sully again. We watched Richard Jewell, which has a lot of similar themes to Sully, and I think was somewhat unfairly overlooked when it came out. I actually feel like there was not very much discourse around Richard Jewell, and and when we were watching it, we were thinking, "This is pretty good. Like, it's actually a pretty solid movie." Um, and then the third one that maybe rounds out that trio, I think, is The Mule, which which unfortunately we have not seen. Um, but I feel like when you think about like these characters of individuals that are going up against massive systems, the other one of that in that kind of theme is that very strongly in that theme is changeling. So that's, that's the other that fits in with that kind of the individual is the only, is the only locus of moral goodness in, in the entire world and is up against everything bad. I mean, to be fair, if you want to see that from the other perspective, you can watch J Edgar, which is like, his film biopic about J. Edgar Hoover is yeah, all about yeah. like the corruption of somebody who has way too much power. Um, uh, you know, a bureaucrat with too much power. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I, I wouldn't say I have, I have a clear favorite myself among, at least among the late period Clint Eastwoods, but do you have thoughts, Laura? I mean, I think we've missed a lot of the earlier stuff. So we're not Clint Eastwood experts either. I will just say, I really liked Richard Jewell. I didn't think I was going to. I thought, I was sort of like, oh gosh, I guess we should do some extra research and, and watch a Clint Eastwood movie. Um, and uh, I really liked it. I think, you know, if my main complaint with Sully was that Sully is kind of a perfect man. I mean, yeah, he's got some some home troubles, I guess, but he's pretty much a perfect dude and he does everything right and he nails it. And the, you know, overlords are the, the NTSB are, are, you know, cartoonishly evil. 
this movie has a little bit more nuance in that Richard Jewell is a really flawed character and um, it's an amazing performance. Uh, I really, I really liked Richard Jewell. I was like locked into it. Yeah. I, I've not seen it, but I want to see it. I'm, I'm guessing that a theme that probably is in that movie that is in Sully as well and is certainly in Unforgiven and, and other Eastwood movies is an idea of redemption. You know, mm. I feel like Richard Jewell is somebody who Eastwood probably thinks needed to be redeemed. He mm. was unfairly maligned, and in many people's minds, uh, he still is. They they don't know the the, the full part story. Where they they dropped it. Yeah, yeah. And with Sully, you know, or maybe I should put it this way: in his filmmaking, maybe Eastwood is trying to set certain records straight or trying to address certain lingering historical issues that mm-hmm. he needs to. Uh, to to take on and maybe with Sully one of the things that he's addressing is is 911 mm-hmm. is the kind of open wound of 911 and mm-hmm. to use a word that you used Justin this is a kind of salve for for that wound and and with Richard Jewell you know here you have a man who was unfairly maligned and you know blamed for a bombing that, that he didn't do yeah so he's doing this historical repair work yeah I like that. The sort of negative flip of that is that he's railing against railroading, right? It's like <laughs> an old man, you know, raising his fist. Get off my a, lawn. Yeah, to a system <laughs> that, he see, that he sees as overreaching. But I like this idea that it's more about a kind of repairing our relationship to our own history, right? And, and ensuring that the history is told in a way that is... Um, Truthful and 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 honest. Yeah, Bilka made that same um, observation. Now that I'm remembering this, in *Inland Fire*. Yeah, he talked about how a lot of Clint Eastwood's direct, directed movies, um, and maybe the the roles he chose that he gets like a more drawn to are are sort of mining these moments of like where something has fractured mm. in American history or in, a, or in a relationship or something like that. And then the, and the repair work, the moments after that, how we mm. get back to being a country, how we get back to being a community. Mm. Um, I'm sure Bilka said it in a way more articulate way. You'll, yeah. We'll have to go back no, no, and find yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah for, for, for those of listeners that's in our, in the line of fire episode, um, which is um, a 93 Wolfgang Peterson film starring Clint Eastwood, but mm-hmm. it's very much sort of reflecting on the JFK assassination. I actually really like this idea because if you watch, if you watch Sully, and you're kind of glib about it and kind of jocular as as, as I was when I first watched it without really thinking about it, you think, oh, this is a cranky old man railing against the press. Oh, there he goes again. But really, if you think about it as a kind of historical repair work, it's really much more interesting, and you can see what he's trying to do, the ways in which it works, the ways in which it comes up short, but it's a much more rich experience if you if you think about it in this way. I think that we should leave it there. I think that is a fantastic note to end on. And Chris, I want to just say thank you very much for joining us. For it's my su- pleasure. Suggesting Sully. And tell us a bit about Said and Done, your podcast. Yeah, so Said and Done is a podcast from the Columbia University Language Resource Center. And in it, I interview people who speak other languages and typically languages that are less discussed, less well-known, less taught languages like Finnish or Wolof or Benawak or um, or I just did uh, Quechua. So languages that have a lot of interesting 
things about them. And so it's about people's experiences with these languages. So for the Finnish episode, uh, the the person I interviewed talked about the Kalevala, which is the Finnish national epic. With the Quechua episode, um, the the Quechua teacher from NYU talked about the ways in which Quechua language is extremely precise in describing certain things and how that contrasts with the way that Spanish describes those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the episode about uh, with uh, uh, about uh, Benoak shamanism, we talked about uh, how this guy became a shaman among the Benoak people of Indonesia. So there's it's really trying to show the ways in which language relates to other facets of human experience. That sounds fascinating. And we are at CowsPod on Twitter. You can find us on the web at cowspod.wordpress.com and you can buy a shirt with two cows on it at cowspod.threadless.com. Next, coming up in two weeks, we have North by Northwest with returning guest Adam Kane. So a little bit of Hitchcock in, and I guess our first Hitchcock and the oldest film we've covered on, the film, on this podcast. Yep, by so. far. Very exciting. So we'll see you guys there for that. All right. 